are at the end of the book of Genesis, a journey we began back uh, March 8th, actually, the week before COVID began and shut us all down and all those kinds of things. So it's been uh, an interesting time uh, that we got through the book of Genesis in less than a year, which is good. And so today we are finishing this book, and uh, someone commented to me this week and said, how are you going to land this plane? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Because, not that I don't know what I'm going to say, but um, it's been such an amazing study in my mind. You know, we started, we we have covered, uh, by the time we finish today, half of the Old Testament history in time which is pretty amazing, from the creation of the world to Genesis chapter 50 is a half, 50% of the history of the Old Testament. The rest of what you read from Exodus to Malachi is the other half of New Testament history. So a lot has happened over these years that have been covered here, around 1,500 or so years, by the time we get to the end of today. So uh, next week, we are starting the Gospel of Matthew. So if you want to read ahead, read um, Matthew's Gospel, read chapter 1, even chapter 2, but we're going to do chapter 1 next week, and just prepare your hearts for that. With that in mind, turn to Genesis 49, and we will jump right in and get started, and we will read down, uh, just to get us started, down to verse 12. Uh, This morning, uh, chapter 12 is an interesting chapter as Jacob, um, before he goes to his deathbed, uh, is blessing his sons. So chapter 49, verse 1, and Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the beginning of my strength, the excellence of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their habitation. Let not my soul enter their counsel. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Lord, as we consider your word this morning, we trust that you will go before us and prepare us and speak to us and lead us and minister to us the things that we need to hear. And Lord, as always, there is something that every heart needs to hear this morning. May you speak exactly what we need to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So an interesting passage this morning, most of chapter 49, uh, the first half anyway, gets into uh, Jacob reaching the end of his life and speaking prophetically over his sons, over his family. And as we come to this point in time, We find here where it says, um, Jacob called his sons and said, gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Uh, As Jacob utters these words to and over his sons, he is speaking to them uh, about how their lives will go and to some extent the persona of the tribes 
that will be founded by them. But in some respects also, uh, with all prophecy, there's a near and a far fulfillment. And some of these uh, prophecies that he speaks over his sons are very far-reaching. Now, we could actually spend quite a bit of time, really, we could spend all of our time today just going over uh, what happened in each of the tribes and sort of trace their lineage and their history uh, throughout the Old Testament, and that could easily take up our time. I've chosen today not to really do that. It's actually a very interesting study to understand how the, the tribes played out and uh, how they, as, as God, you know, led them into the promised land where they settled, um, how successful or unsuccessful they were in following the Lord and, and all of that. And again, very, very interesting study, but we're not going to go very deep on those things this morning. So Jacob says here in verse two, gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel, your father. So when we think of what he is doing here, it's very interesting. He is preparing his sons for his departure from this earth. He has the great blessing of having all of his kids there in this moment as he is getting weak and old. And as he calls them together to speak to them, he actually invokes both of his names. Remember his name Jacob means sneaky thief or hill catcher or supplanter. And for much of his early life, that was his character and his nature until he met God there at Bethel on two occasions. And on both of those occasions, he met with God. One of them, he wrestled with God, but both of them were divine encounters. And then we saw over those next few years from Jacob's life after he had encountered the Lord, that there was this renovation that was taking place in his life. And after uh, the wrestling incident, God said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but it shall be Israel. And Israel, of course, means governed by God. And so from that point forward, Jacob began to conform more to the uh, title of the name that God had given him. So now Jacob, at the end of his life, looking back at his own life, looking at the lives of his sons, looking at how God has been with his family. He says here to his son, Reuben, Reuben, you are my firstborn, and it starts out pretty well. My might and the beginning of my strength, the excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Remember, six sons were given to uh, Jacob or Israel by uh, the wife that he never wanted, the, his wife Leah. And so, First off, Reuben's up and he's thinking, this sounds pretty good. Thanks, dad. But then as he continues in verse four, he says, you're unstable as water. You shall not excel because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So he's calling back a sin that happened some 30 or 40 years earlier in his life. And as we read something like this, we might think, hey, hey, that's, that's in the past, let it go, you know, let's move forward. But I would say here, based on everything I've read about this, that Reuben likely never actually repented from this sin. He likely never came to his dad and asked for his forgiveness and admitted his wrong. Instead, he just committed that sin, and you may recall as we went over that, uh, a number of weeks back, that when, when Reuben did those things, this was an act of defiance. It was him, in a sense, if we use sort of a older language and terminology, he raised his hand against his father. Uh, he rebelled against his father in so doing. What he did was a heinous sin anyway. But in sleeping with one of his father's wives, <coughs> you know, it was an insult to his father. It brought shame upon the family. And no doubt if Reuben had repented, if he had asked the Lord for repentance and asked for forgiveness and asked his father for forgiveness, I have no doubt that the blessing would have been different. But because Reuben was unrepentant and unwilling to face and to deal with his sin, here at the end of his life, he's receiving not a blessing, but a rebuke. And in essence, he's saying here, you're not going to amount to very much, son in the days ahead. I can't think of something that could be more 
sad and painful hearing those words from your father as he lies on his deathbed. Well, as he continues in verse 5, he speaks to Simeon and Levi, who again are brothers of the same mother. And he says here, instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger, they slew a man. And in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. And their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Interesting situation here. I think similar to Reuben, that these brothers, as you recall now, they were indignant that their sister Dinah had been raped and and brutally mistreated. And so they went out and sought justice for what had happened to her. And there's a right way and a wrong way to seek justice. And these men committed what we might term today vigilante justice. And as they went in, they certainly could have gotten those men who committed the crime and brought them to justice. But instead, they went over and above. They went way beyond and they decimated the entire town, the entire region. They killed everybody, the men, the women, and the children, even even those, of course, who had no part in that sin or in that heinous crime that was committed. But here we are with Israel on his deathbed, looking at his boys and speaking these things to them. And notice that he is speaking in the present tense, that their anger is still present. It's not like they had anger in the past and that they repented from it. It would seem that they never repented from their anger. And as we read here, in their anger, they slew a man, and in their self-will, they hamstrung an ox. So these were not just, this was not just one isolated incident as they went in and and mopped up from the uh, justice of their sister's crime. Uh, They have a history of violence. Uh, They even were cruel to an animal and uh, Cruel to human beings is certainly an unthinkable thing, and we should always hold human life in high regard and above that of animals. But when people are also cruel to animals, you know, that's a different kind of cruelty. And he says in verse 7, Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. Now, if any of you know someone in your life who is an angry person, you know that it's difficult to want to even be around them just because they're an angry person. They're always negative. They're bitter. They're just seething. And anger is something that hopefully does not mark the life of a believer, of a Christian. But let me just say to you today, if you consider yourself to be a believer in Jesus Christ and you have what I might describe as an undercurrent of anger in your life, if you have unresolved bitterness, if you have unresolved issues, perhaps there are things that go way back due to some, some terrible thing that happened many years ago, perhaps even in your childhood, perhaps you were violated or horribly mistreated, and, which has resulted in some form of trauma in your life. Uh, listen, you can deal with that. There's, there's a healthy way to deal with that. You can get professional help, but you can also get help from the Lord. You know, just because someone has done something wrong to you does not mean that you need to carry that for the whole of your life, especially for things that happened years ago in the past. And we can see here, and we could certainly do a study on the topic or on the issue of anger, unresolved anger, bitterness. These things can eat up our lives. They can lead us to places that we don't want to go. We may end up doing things we don't want to do. Listen, how many times have you read or seen on the news of road rage? Someone got in their car, everything was fine, didn't think they were an angry person, but then, you know, something happens on the road and they end up following them or somebody follows them and, you know, crazy things happen. And that's where unresolved anger and bitterness can lead you. So... Jacob says here to these boys, their anger is fierce, their wrath is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And before he comes to Judah, 
We should note that, remember earlier that Jacob had called Joseph and his two sons before him, and he laid his hand on the son, the heads of those sons, and those sons were raised up to take the place of these men, certainly at least Reuben and Simeon, because we know Levi later became the father of the tribe of the priests, and they were given a special inheritance. So certainly Reuben and Simeon were replaced by the two sons of Joseph. Then in verse 8, Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. And of course, we remember that the name of Judah means praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? So we're getting the idea here that the Lord is speaking through this man, Jacob, through Israel, to his sons. And as he's speaking, these words are, are not only sort of a blessing or even a lack of a blessing in some of these cases, but is certainly prophetic. And we know that the Christ, the Messiah, would come from the lion of the tribe of Judah, He would come from Judah, and he would be called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we see here that his father names him as such. And it says in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Now Jacob, here in his old age, as he's on his bed, I want to encourage you with this fact that he is a man at this moment who is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he is prophesying. And he is speaking of the fact that through his son Judah, that the Messiah would come. And when it says the scepter, the word scepter, or the rule, uh, you know, means that the, the, the reign or the influence of the tribe of Judah would never diminish. And when he says, until Shiloh comes, the word Shiloh means whose it is. And if we understand this properly, this means that Shiloh, which is, in my understanding, clearly a reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he would have this scepter, this rule, this reign. And we know as we think forward and we know that Jesus, of course, came Uh, was sent by God to be the incarnate God to those of us on the earth at the time is coming in his second coming, where he will come and he will reign and rule over the entire earth. In his first coming, he came to present himself as the Lamb of God, not as the Lion of Judah. But in his second coming, he comes as the Lion of Judah, and he comes with force to reign and to rule over the earth. And so here we are so many thousands of years prior to whenever that happens when Jesus comes back, that the words of Jacob will stand firm as he spoke here in in chapter 49, until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Certainly in his first coming, there was a certain level of obedience to those of us who have become believers in Jesus Christ. But until that day when he sits on his royal throne and he rules and reigns over the entire world, and the entire world is judged before him and by him, then he shall realize the obedience of all the people. Then he goes on to say in verse 11, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes and His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. So Judah was a a handsome man and one whom people would be drawn to. And certainly his tribe would become that way. Zebulun, verse 13, shall dwell by the haven of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall adjoin Sidon. So speaking of the region that he would eventually land in and his inheritance in the land. Verse 14, Issachar is a strong donkey lying down. Between two burdens, he saw that rest was good and that the land was pleasant. He bowed his shoulder to bear a burden and became a band of slaves. So speaking of the strength of this tribe as they would be a tribe of workers and slaves. Verse 16, Dan shall judge his people as one 
of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent by the way, a viper of the path, by the path that bites the horse's heel so that its rider shall fall backward. And then he says here, in the context of Dan, I have waited for your salvation, O Lord. And it would seem in this moment that Jacob just sort of you know, stops and sort of maybe leans back and just lifts his eyes to heaven and says, I've waited for your salvation, O Lord. And in this moment, uh, we believe, and most of the commentators said this as well, that it seems to be a moment where Jacob was just enjoying communion with the Lord. And as he was speaking to his sons, that he knew that God was speaking to him and through him. And that at this point, you know, we think back again to J- Jacob's life. And when he had those uh, two encounters, and of course he had more than that, but when he had those two encounters at Bethel, that the Lord ministered to him, the Lord spoke to him. And he remembered that. He remembered those times, and those times were sweet to him. He treasured those times. And because the Lord spoke to him, and because he knew in this moment that God was communing with him, that he stops and he just cries out to the Lord, Lord, I've waited for your salvation. The word salvation here is Yeshua, which gives us the name Joshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. The Greek form of this term is Jesus. And I have waited for your salvation. I have waited for your servant. I've waited for Jesus, O Lord, as he speaks in this moment. It's interesting to note, as he said here, that the scepter would not depart from Judah. And as he's speaking through these different men's uh, destinies, that as we think forward about some of the, the great characters of the Bible, uh, and this is just to sort of acclimate you to this as you read through the Old Testament, but Moses was from the tribe of Levi. Joshua, Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. Gideon was from the tribe of Manasseh. Samson was from the tribe of Dan. Samuel was from the tribe of Ephraim. Saul, of course, King Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. David, King David, was from the tribe of Judah. And we know that through David, the Christ came, Jesus came through David's lineage. So it's interesting to note as we read through this prophetic blessing that Jacob is giving to his sons, and as we encounter other biblical characters later, to sort of note what was their lineage, and does what Jacob spoke here over his sons have any bearing on these other people through whom God worked and used. You see, God did work in and use each of those tribes. He used these tribes to establish the nation of Israel. And there was no tribe through whom he didn't ultimately work or do something in somebody's life. And I say that to say this just by way of application to us, no matter what your lineage is, Now, I don't know if you've ever looked into your background or your lineage. There's certainly ways to do that today. It's it's interesting. I have an extended member of my family who's a cousin who uh, a number of years ago decided to go off and look into the lineage of our family. And if you come into our house today, there's a book about this thick laying on the coffee table that he produced. And he just went back to our great-grandparents uh, he, he, did, he went back a, a little further, but mainly from them down, and he did this sort of genealogy search, and he did a history, a background history with pictures, and it's just interesting to read through that, and as I, although I haven't read it cover to cover, but just flipping through it, looking through it is interesting to me that in my family, this is just on the, the Barham side, it's not on my mom's side of the family, um, how many people were believers and how many people were actually in service to the Lord in ministry. Uh, And it's just such an encouragement to me when I'm able to see that. Uh, But you know, the Lord can use anyone, any family. And even if you come from a family where your lineage is not such a, a proud thing to look back on, listen, God just needs one person whose heart is yielded to him and he can use that person and change the course of that family. From, from you on, if you are willing to be that person. Well, as we continue here, chapter 49, verse 19, he has one 
thing to say to Gad, a troop shall tramp upon him, but he shall triumph at last, sort of giving us the idea that the tribe of Gad will be embroiled in battle, but ultimately they will triumph. Verse 20, bread from Asher shall be rich and he shall yield royal dainties. Uh, perhaps speaking of just the, the way that they would um, minister as a family going forward. Verse 21, Naphtali is a deer let loose. He uses beautiful words. Some interesting word pictures here. The word deer, or if you're looking at another translation such as the King James or, or other, it might say a hind. Uh, so Naphtali is a deer let loose. This sort of speaks of the idea of being free-spirited. And when he says he uses beautiful words, the word beautiful words means poetic. So this could be sort of that free-spirited free artistic uh, side of uh, life and of people. Perhaps this would be a tribe of people who could be used of the Lord in that way to, to minister in those areas. Verse 22, he comes to Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough. A fruitful bough by a well, his branches run over the wall. So he starts out really great with Joseph, and of course it gets even better. But it's interesting how he describes his son Joseph. Now when we stop and consider the life of Joseph even briefly, we know that Joseph's life was bitter and difficult, was it not? That at 17 his brothers sold him into slavery. They indeed tried to kill him. They told his father he was dead. And when they sold him into slavery, he went to Egypt. He ended up getting sold to Potiphar, served in Potiphar's house. Things were going good, but then Potiphar's wife came after him and wanted him to lie with her. He refused and stood fast in his integrity and said, I won't dishonor the name of my master, nor will I dishonor God. Uh, his wife, uh, Potiphar's wife, came against Joseph, had him thrown in prison, we know the story and we could go through and rehearse all these things in Joseph's life until the time that God brought Joseph before Pharaoh and made him second in command. And we look at Joseph's life and we see rejection from his family. And we've talked about this a number of times as we've been going through this study, how Joseph had opportunities to become angry, to become bitter, to become vengeful. And when the day came that God brought his family before him in fulfillment of his dreams, that his family would bow down. He certainly had the opportunity to act with self-will and to take revenge on his family. And he says here that he was a bow by a well, a fruitful bow, and his branches run over the wall. This is what God has done in Joseph's life, not just at this point as as Jacob is speaking to him and over him and giving him this blessing. But certainly this has been the course of his life, has it not? Even in times of leanness, even in times when he was in prison, God used him, God blessed him, God made him fruitful. And you see, sometimes we make the mistake of assessing and judging what's going on in our life by our circumstances, don't we? And we say, because I am where I am, doing what I'm doing, and yet there's no, no fruitfulness. Sometimes we look at that and we say, that means that there's no fruitfulness. But often we don't see what God is doing in the silent times, what God is doing during the times of trial. That God is perhaps weeding our lives out, that he's making us to be fruitful. Joseph was made to be fruitful. And it says in verse 23, the archers have bitterly grieved him. They shot at him and hated him. No doubt referring to his brothers and how they treated him in the beginning of his life. But certainly as Joseph went through his life, you know, Potiphar's life, Potiphar's wife could be one of those archers. Um, the other people who came against him during his life could have been those archers. And he says, these archers have bitterly grieved him. They shot at him. They hated him. <clears throat> In other words, people were constantly coming against him. And today, if you feel like that, then know that God knows these things. God was watching over Joseph as he went through these things in his life. Verse 24, but his bow remained in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. 
God strengthened him. God gave him endurance. God gave him wisdom. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Look at these names of God that are falling from the lips of Israel as he speaks to this son, to this boy. The mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. This is the God who strengthened him and enabled him to go through the things that he went through to end up where he is this very day as he stands before his father. By the God of your father who will help you. Perhaps you should underline that today. By the God of your father who will help you. By the almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above. Blessings of the deep that lies beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Listen to what he's saying here in these two verses, verses 25 and 26. Now, prior to this, God had blessed Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And now Jacob, as he stands or as his son stands before him, he's talking about a type of blessing that the way God is working and moving in Joseph's life is unlike anything that he has ever seen or that he had ever dreamed would happen. He sees how God is working in Joseph's life. And Joseph has become the one, a type of Christ who is like the Messiah, who has been used as the deliverer for the nation of Israel. Remember, they would have died when this famine hit. And remember that God sent Joseph on ahead to make preparations for his family. And so God will help you. The Almighty will bless you. Blessings of heaven, blessings of the deep, blessings of the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors. The way God has blessed you, son, is like nothing I've ever seen. Up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills, they shall be on the head of Joseph. Joseph is the one through whom God will bring the lineage of the Messiah and the explosion of the nation of Israel. And then he comes to Benjamin, the youngest, verse 27, Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. That the tribe of Benjamin would be a fierce tribe, a tribe of warriors. And then he comes to verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel, and this is what their father spoke to them. And he blessed them and blessed each one according to his own blessing. Then he charged them and said to to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephon, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And he says, there I buried Leah. Interesting. He wants to be buried there with his fathers, but also with Leah. And it's interesting that he, of course, loved Rachel. Rachel was the wife that he was so desperately in love with. And he always saw Joseph really as the firstborn, even though Reuben was his firstborn through Leah. And here he is wanting to be laid beside Leah at the end of his life, as opposed to where Rachel was buried. And I think that was primarily because this is where the other fathers were buried. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up onto the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Now, in essence, what we have just read here, besides it being the blessing to the sons and a prophetic utterance over how their lives would play out as tribes, there's something else we can learn from this. And that is how to prepare for death. Now, none of us knows how it's going to come, when it's going to come, if we will even have the opportunity, perhaps, to have our family gathered around us when our moment comes that we pass from this life. 
But Jacob, as he's speaking to his sons here, is really, in a sense, giving his last will and testament. He is giving to them his wishes on how he wants to be buried, how he wants uh, you know, to be handled. He doesn't want to be buried there in Egypt. He wants to be buried with his family, with his fathers. And there's something that we should consider. It's something that we often don't like to consider, and that's planning. And that's looking forward in life. Now, how often do we talk about things like having a will, being prepared? You know, if you have kids, you should have a will. It doesn't matter how young they are. If something happened to you, you know, listen, I don't want to be morbid, but if if mom and dad go out on a date night and they leave kids at home with a babysitter, listen, anything can happen. If you don't have preparations, the state will take your children. So you have to have preparations. There should be some forethought given to your life. And the way it should work really is that we, we think about these things. We put something in place. And yes, it's a living document. It should be updated as we go through our lives. And as I look back on my family, you know, my mom and my dad just died over the last two years or so. Thank God that they had their affairs in order, that they had seen an attorney and got all of their things uh, just listed out. And then as we walked through that process with them, my sister and I, uh, thankfully, we were able to walk through that and work through that with little to no effort other than just following the legal process. And so I say that just to encourage you this morning to, to deal with those things. We don't like to think about it, but you should. You should plan ahead. You, you have an opportunity now to deal with those things. And certainly here, Jacob dealt with these things before his sons, told them what his last wishes were. Then in chapter 50, then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. No doubt. Uh, I had the great privilege of being with both of my parents when they passed. And for me, because my parents did have a relationship with the Lord, uh, we were able to be there, my sister and I, and hold their hands and read scripture to them and over them and pray. And, and we did this. We did exactly what Joseph did here. We fell on them and wept as uh, they went to be with the Lord. And I pray that for each of us, that God would grant us that it could be an experience where we experience his peace and his love and his grace in that moment when it happens. I I realize it doesn't happen that way for everybody. We were certainly blessed to have experienced things as we did. But we need to be trusting in the Lord. And many of us, of course, have family and friends, parents even, who don't know Christ. And we pray and we say, Lord, please, we plead with the Lord. Uh, Yes, we talk to them as much as they will allow us. We share Christ with them. But we want to pray. Be in prayer for those people in your life who do not yet know the Lord. Lift them up before the throne of heaven and ask God to be gracious and merciful. So Joseph fell on his father's face. He wept. He kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, interestingly, it was customary in Egypt that while the physicians were trained in the the process of embalming, often it was the priests who did the embalming. And in this particular case, Joseph commanded the physicians, not the priests, because, of course, the priests were pagan, and they had strange and bizarre bizarre rituals that they would invoke as as they would embalm the body. So Joseph commanded the physicians rather to be the ones to embalm his father. And then we see in verse 3, 40 days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, Now if I found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying, and in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he has made you swear. So once again, God gives favor to Joseph and his family before Pharaoh, and he's allowed to now take his father up and bury him. 
But let's not miss the fact here, as we were, we were told in verse 3, that for 40 days that there was mourning and the Egyptians mourned for him 70 days. So the whole nation of, Is, of, uh, of Egypt mourned for Jacob, for Joseph's father, a foreigner, a stranger, a Hebrew. And this tells you about how respected that Joseph was, how much he was accepted by the people. And we know, as we have been going through the story, that this is simply the favor of God upon Joseph's life. That these people didn't hate Joseph as a political leader. In fact, they looked at him with honor and dignity. Who can say that about any political leader in this day and age? That we can look at someone and say they have served in such a way that they are endeared to the people. So now Joseph goes up, verse 7, to bury his father, and, uh, and, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh sends a whole entourage of people from Egypt to go with Joseph, to travel with them as they go up to the place where they are going to bury Jacob. As well as the house of Joseph, verse 8, his brothers, his father's house, only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left behind in the land of Goshen. And there they went up with him, both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation, and he observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizram, which is beyond the Jordan. And so his sons did for him, just as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field uh, from Ephraim the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. So they've concluded this portion of their life. They've buried their father. And now it's, it's just the brothers. Verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, well, perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. Now keep in mind that this was a time in history and culture when things were passed along from family to family and, and down through the ages through oral tradition. And I have to believe that they knew the story of Esau and Jacob. Remember, there was such a bitter rivalry between the two brothers, especially because of how uh, Jacob had treated Esau, that Esau said to him one day, hey, when dad dies, you're dead. And perhaps they were thinking that, no doubt they, they knew these things. And so now they're saying, well, perhaps now that dad's gone, Joseph's going to turn. Maybe he's going to finally take his vengeance on us. Maybe all this stuff has just been a preamble to sort of sucker us in. And so they sent messengers to Joseph. They didn't even go to their brother. Now think about how Joseph has dealt with them. Think about that second trip as they came and, and the interaction between Joseph and his brothers and with Benjamin and revealing himself to them and weeping so bitterly that all of Pharaoh's house heard as he cried before them and said, my brothers, it is I. And as he revealed himself, there was such a, a brokenness to the way he dealt with them. And now they are worried. They think that Joseph might actually take revenge on them. So instead of even going to them, him themselves, and certainly now all these years that they've lived in Goshen, they, they could see how Joseph had treated them. And so they send these messengers and they say, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, please... Um, Forgive the trespass of the servants uh, of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I forget, this is either the sixth or the seventh time that Joseph has broken down and wept in this story. And one of the things we note about when Joseph weeps 
is he is weeping for others. He's not weeping for himself because he is a deeply emotional person. He's weeping for other people. Go back and look at all of these times that Joseph has broken down and wept. So Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face. And they said, behold, we are your servants. They come and they present themselves. No doubt, and this is the ultimate fulfillment, is it not, of his dream that God had given him. And Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Woe. Listen, when you and I decide that we're going to take vengeance on someone, we have put ourselves in the place of God. When you and I decide, I'm not going to stop till I, I make them bow and say I'm so, they're sorry. You know how people, perhaps you've been there, I have many times where someone, you know, demands an apology and they demand you to say they're, you're sorry. They, they demand, have all these conditions that they want you to fulfill. Now, certainly if we've done something wrong, we should own up and fess up. But my point is that sometimes we come to the place that rather than trusting God and saying, look, God has to deal with that person, right? God needs to deal with the attitude of their heart and the issues and their anger and whatever else, the unforgiveness and the bitterness and, and the hurt that already existed in their life before this incident. You know, God needs to deal with that individual, But certainly if there's things we need to confess, we need to do that. But Joseph recognized here. He said, I'm not in the place of God. It's not my place to judge you for your sin. And I hope we get this this morning. Listen, if you get nothing else, underline, highlight Genesis chapter 50, verse 19 and verse 20. Joseph said, am I in the place of God? Listen, stop and think, pray. All of the times that you and I act in the place of God. Because of how we think. Because of how we judge others. Listen to what he says in verse 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me. No doubt they did, right? But God meant it for good. In order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Now do not worry. Don't be afraid. I'll provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Think about what he says here. I know you meant evil. I know you tried to hurt me. I know you wanted to kill me. You sold me into slavery. And as I think back on all those things, and certainly Joseph had ample time to think in prison and In all of those times in his life, he had time to think about these things, but God spoke to him. And God had worked in this man's life to such an extent. I mean, listen, we have not seen Joseph respond in any way that would indicate that he wanted to take revenge or any any form of retribution against his brothers. And he certainly, listen, he could have been justified, couldn't he? because of what they did and how they did it. But remember, the the Lord says a number of times in his word, he says, do not repay. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Listen, if you want to be in the place of God and you want to go after vengeance and you want to make someone bow down and say uncle and say they're sorry, then God will let you do that. But you will never have the joy of knowing that God has dealt with someone in a full and in a complete way, because however you and I deal with one another, especially in things of conflict, and especially in matters of the heart where there's been hurt and injury, you know, God has to bring that person to the place that they can say, Lord, I've sinned against you and against this person. And then they can come in humility and and come before you and say, please forgive me for the wrong that I've done. That's way better Then someone coming and apologizing and asking for forgiveness because you made them do it. You shamed them. You humiliated them into doing it. Am I in the place of God? You may have meant something for evil, but God meant it for good. You see, there's where we stumble, isn't it? We can't see that God meant it for good. Have we forgotten? You know, we we have the whole book, right? 
we have the end of the story and we have that beautiful verse that I think could be written from the life of Joseph all the way to the end. It could have been written repeatedly all across the top of our Bibles like ticker tape. And that verse is Romans 8, 28. But we know that God causes all things, not some things, all things to work together to the good of those who love him and to those who were the called according to his purpose. You see, that verse wasn't written or spoken, but no doubt Joseph understood that principle. God meant it for good. You see, God's the only one who can take the messed up stuff that happens in our lives and turn it around and use it for his purposes. Because remember this, it's always for our good and his glory. It's always for our good and his glory. As it is this day to save many people, Joseph realized in that moment as his brothers are standing before him, they're in Egypt. God led him to be the man who came to the place of power that he was in. God put him there. He didn't rise of his own accord. He knows that. God gave him the divine ability to administrate the way he did. He interpreted the Pharaoh's dream and he said, Pharaoh, if I may be so bold with the interpretation of your dream, you need somebody who can do these things and organize and order things in such a way that we can prepare for the seven years of plenty and store things up and order them in such a way that when the seven years of famine hit, we can administrate and get through this and the whole world can come to us, not just our little country. And they can be taken care of. And oh, by the way, even though Joseph may not have said it or may not have been thinking about his family and that God ultimately, this was the whole plan, right? The whole plan was Israel. The whole plan was the nation of God. See, that was what was in play. That was what it was in scope. And God used Joseph in this incredibly powerful, mighty way. And he says here to his brothers, in order to bring it about as it is this day, where we stand today, what we're doing today, this is why God did all that stuff. To save many people alive. And isn't that just like God? God's about the business of people, isn't he? He's about the people of, he's about the business of salvation. He's about the business of deliverance. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he confronted them and spoke kindly to them. Then this last little section is this. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. So Joseph was 17 years old when he was taken to Egypt. And he lived there 93 years. 51 of them were with his family in his life. Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. So Joseph had the ability to enjoy his family. And Joseph said to his brethren, I'm dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Then Joseph fell on, uh, excuse me, I've got a something out of place here. And that was it. So, and he was embalmed and put in a coffin in Egypt. And so the Lord brings the, the life of Joseph to a close. He brings the book of Genesis to a close with this. And if you care to go on and read in the book of Exodus, you have a great background and preparation for what the Lord begins to do in the book of Exodus. So we, we end here sort of anticlimactic. Uh, in a way that Joseph died being 110 years old and they bombed him and put him in a coffin. But as we think about what God has done here over this first 1,500 or so years of human history, this first half of the history of the Old Testament, that God has been so gracious, hasn't he? In the, in the creation of the earth and the way that he has worked in and through the lives of people and the way God... Uh, came to Abraham and said, I will bless you. Remember, Abraham wasn't even seeking God. Abraham was a pagan guy who was worshiping at 
the altars of false gods when God sought him out and spoke to him. And then he spoke to him and said, I'm just going to bless you. I love you. I'm going to make a great nation out of you. All who bless you will be blessed and all who curse you will be cursed. And God did all of these incredible things from chapter 15 to chapter 50 as we have read about the lives of the patriarchs and what God has done. Let us remember all of the lessons, all of the things that God has been speaking to us through this time. And may God use these things to enrich our lives, to cause us to grow in Christ. And may we remember as we've gone through this last little bit today that God is in control. God's going to take care of the stuff, you know, the things that concern you and me, the things that we worry about, the things that we're thinking about, our, our lives, our health, our children, our families, those who do and don't know the Lord. Yes, we need to be crying out. Yes, we need to be praying to God. Yes, we need to be active. But God is the one who's ultimately in charge. He's the one who's ultimately in control. And if there's nothing else that you get out of this, and I hope you get a lot, I want you to know something. God has so clearly communicated that he loves you. Because of what he did in these people's lives and how he did it. All of this is a lesson for us. You know, the New Testament is the one that says in a number of places, all of this was written for our instruction. All of this was written to let us know. You know, these are, this is not just a book of history of something that happened way back when and that you and I kind of look at and go, well, that was kind of interesting. I'm not really a history person, but it was an interesting story. No, no, it's for us. The things that God did in the lives of these people, these things are for us as well. What does God want to do in your life? What does he want to do in my life in the days ahead? Listen, God is a God of hope. He's a God of vision. He's a God of purpose. You know, we're two weeks away from Christmas, three weeks away from the new year. Everybody I see uh, on the news and on Facebook and all of these things, they're all like, I cannot wait for 2020 to be over. How do you know 2021 is going to be any better? You don't. You know, I just want this year to be over because it's going to get, it can't get any worse, right? It can, but God's in control. And no matter what God brings, no matter what he allows, he's in charge. God will cause all things to work together to the good for those who love him and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Are you his son or his daughter? Have you trusted in him? Do you believe in him? And are you walking with him? Because if you are, those promises are for you. If you call yourself a Christian, but you're not walking with God, I don't know what to tell you, except turn and walk with God. If you are a believer walking outside of the will of God, then I believe you are what the Bible calls a carnal Christian. And the most miserable person on the face of the planet, as I understand it, is a carnal Christian. So I hope that you're not in that camp or in that category. I hope you're in the category of Romans 8, 28, those who love him and those who are the called according to his purpose. So may God bless us. May he be with us through the remainder of this year. And as we enter into uh, the book of Matthew and we consider the Christmas story over the next uh, two times that we meet, may God just fill us with hope and wonder and awe. May we lay aside all the garbage going on with the election and COVID and whatever else is happening. And may we focus on the Lord. Our hope is not in men. Whether the current president gets reelected or the president-elect person, listen, that's in God's hands. God determines who wins these things. God is in control. Even if, even if it's by crooked means, God's in control. God will determine how this is going to play out. But, but you and I, we are called to fix our eyes on heaven to look at the cross, to preach the gospel, to live godly and righteously in these present days. That's what we're called to do. Focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and let go of all the other stuff that are non-essentials in this life. Lord, we love you. We bless you. Thank you for speaking to us and ministering to us. And God, today, 
we turn our hearts toward you. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Thank you for the book of Genesis. And Lord, as we turn to Matthew, may we just encounter Jesus in a fresh way. And we pray these things in the name of our Lord, of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.